Well, good morning. Uh, it is a joy to be with you guys. Um, even over this digital space, we still have the opportunity to meet, open up God's word for a little while and see what his directives and his wills uh, is for our lives. Um, I hope that you're being challenged by this Truly Living series. We'll, we'll continue it today. Actually, we'll uh, um, uh, finish. We'll arrive at the conclusion of our series today. Uh, so I, I know that you guys uh, have loved this series. I've seen a lot of chatter on Facebook about it. I really personally enjoyed this one. It's been a personally a challenging one for me. I hope that you'll enjoy the finish of this uh, service today. Um, if you haven't already, go and get the most what is it, valuable uh, app on the entire marketplace, as Jeremy asserted to us this morning. Uh, go get the Church Center app and make sure that if you haven't given this morning, uh, go into that app and, and place an amount this morning and give. Uh, what you guys give not only funds the church, but also remember it funds um, the pastors overseas that we deal directly with and have discipleship relations with people that we love and know well. So Make sure that you're giving to, to the church this morning, and let's go ahead and pray over our offering time and over our uh, sermon time. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for a chance to open up your word, to open up um, to one of the most impressive and important verses in the entire Bible in John 3.16 today. As we look at how much you love us and the way that you love us is that you give. So I pray that you would bless our time and you would challenge us to, again, think about how we can grow in the grace of generosity to become more like you as we model your heartbeat. In that vein, Father, I pray that you would bless the giving this morning, that you would make us cheerful givers, that we would joyfully and sacrificially give, because when we do that, we aren't just fulfilling an obligation. Rather, we are growing to become more like you. And so help us this morning to give well. Help us to use that and steward those funds well to increase our influence and to increase our impact, not only with the people of our church, but anybody that we come in contact with. Father, I pray that you bless this time and bless the sermon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me open up my notes here. Um, it, it's officially time. Um, uh, I, I just posted a picture on, on Facebook. Um, let me just show you. This is probably uncouth, but whatever. I've got my Christmas socks on today. You know what I'm saying? It's time. It's time. We're headed towards the Christmas season, right? And I, I'm listening to the Christmas music. And actually, I'll tell you this. I have confession time. I'm a Christmas purist. That means that when you're doing the dishes for Thanksgiving, that's the time that you can put on Christmas music. Not before. These like radio stations that come out in October... Um, before Halloween has even happened, and they're playing Christmas Christmas music, and those of you who are listening to that, man, we just we, we're at odds on this one. We're not going to agree. It is what it is. I, I'm fine with you guys putting up your Christmas trees in October, but I'm not that person. I'm going to put it up after Thanksgiving because I'm a Christmas purist. Um, and and so, but it is time now. Finally, we're in December. It's time to put the Christmas tree up. It's time to be in the Christmas spirit. So I've made a mental list of some Christmas movies that I want to watch in order to put me more into that Christmas spirit. But this generosity series has been messing with me. It's been challenging me to look at the world differently, and now I can't help but see what's really happening in some of these classic Christmas movies that I'm going to be watching this season. Let's talk about It's a Wonderful Life. It's a movie about George Bailey and how he hasn't adopted Jesus's abundance mindset. So he sees his life as hopeless and he's living out of a, a scarcity mindset. Actually, the place is, the world is a place of scarcity rather than a place of abundance. And his life is not a blessing. He doesn't see opportunity. He doesn't see potential because he hasn't adopted Jesus's 
worldview of abundance. In the end, through the help of the angel Clarence, thank you, Clarence, uh, he finally sees that his family is a blessing, that his life is a blessing. What about White Christmas? Bing Crosby and crew, they save a hotel from bankruptcy with a whiz-bang musical show. It's about what happens when you generously give your time, your talents, and your resources to benefit others. That's what the movie's all about, generosity. What about this one? How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Lonely and angry Grinch learns the importance of relationships because of the neighborly generosity of Cindy Lou Who. It's a movie about what a scarcity mindset does to your heart. It shrinks it two sizes too small. But if you make giving and generosity and love and kindness part of your life, if you practice generosity, then your heart will grow. What about Elf? This is probably one of the fan favorites out there. Naive and sweet Buddy the Elf leaves the North Pole on an adventure to find his real father. It's a movie about arranging your priorities to live an abundant life that Jesus calls us to live. And let's get to my my final and favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard. New York Police Department officer John McClane must save his wife and children from German terrorists using his considerable action hero capabilities. This movie is all about how a savior gives himself to save his people. See, I, I told you, this series, this truly living series, is messing with me. <laughs> it's challenging me to see the world differently. I get that some of that's a little bit of a stretch, but you kind of get the point that I'm making, whether it's silly or not. There's something special about Christmas. Uh, I get that the real meaning can get hidden sometimes beneath the superficial stuff that our culture focuses on. But Christmas at its core really is about God's generosity. He gave Jesus so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is why Christmas is so special. It's a whole holiday around the idea of God's generosity. Now, we're going to finish our series by looking at the greatest statement about God's generosity found anywhere in the Bible. For God so loved, he gave. Jesus is the greatest gift, and in giving himself, we learn something actually about God's generosity as well. Now let's look at the story surrounding that John 3.16 passage that we all know so well in order to put some frame and some um, understanding to why Jesus even says it in the first place. Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So the first thing that we have to notice is that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the popular religious party of their day, but they weren't the party or the, the religious party that was in power. That was the Sadducees. But Nicodemus wasn't just any Pharisee. And they call that out in the verse. He's a part of the Jewish ruling council. He was recognized and an appointed leader of the nation with the legal status of an expert in the law. So this is no schmo. This is no schmuck that Jesus is dealing with. This is a serious guy. Let's look in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, there are some different interpretations regarding his coming by night. The most widely held view is that Nicodemus came to see Jesus under cover of night because he was afraid. 
afraid to lose his status, afraid to legitimize Jesus's ministry in front of his other Pharisee friends. There's a lot of reasons that his fear would have driven him to come at night. And that's a pretty good assumption, I think. But also there might be some credence to, to the fact that uh, John calls out this specific detail for its metaphorical value. Nicodemus is coming out of darkness into light. D.A. Carson says it this way, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his night was darker than he knew. So Nicodemus addressed Jesus with this complimentary title, calling him rabbi, trying to set Jesus at ease by assuring him that he recognizes some validity to Jesus's ministry. This educated theological expert is condescending to speak politely to an uneducated peasant. He speaks with the royal we, right? He says it in, uh, he came to Jesus and I said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. As if to say he's speaking with some authority, using all of the weight of his position to assert himself as the real expert who will then school Jesus in what he needs to know. Now, what's wild is Jesus' response. It really is amazing. Jesus doesn't say why, Master Nicodemus, I'm so glad that you recognized my, uh, my ministry, the validity of it. Jesus doesn't say, you, you know, it's so wonderful to actually get to sit and talk with somebody who gets it like you do, Nicodemus. Instead, Jesus says, you know a lot? Okay, well, here's something you might not know. Verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus' response cuts right past Nicodemus's veneer of pleasantries and goes right to the heart of why they're meeting in the first place. Nicodemus, you are wondering if I am him, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that is to come. What would you think if I told you that I am him, but that you weren't ready for me? Nicodemus, as it stands, you don't have the spiritual ability to even recognize the kingdom of God and the king who is sitting right in front of your face. Nicodemus's response to this born again term shows that he doesn't really understand what Jesus is trying to say because he's thinking about it in terms of a literal birth. John 3, 4. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, to understand Nicodemus' response, you have to know something about the word that Jesus used for born again. In Greek, the word is pronounced anathen. Anathen has a double meaning. It can mean again, like a second time. Or it can mean from above, which is actually its primary meaning. Let me give you a for instance. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus is answering, I think it's Caiaphas, um, at his trial. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Same word, anathem. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Nicodemus takes it to mean a second time. And it seems that Jesus means it to be understood as from above. And I love that this is the word that Jesus uses because it does mean a second birth. We have a new heart that happens but it doesn't mean a second birth the way that Nicodemus thinks that it means. It does mean from above. So Jesus answers with a clarification. 
You didn't understand what I what I just did there, did you? Uh, let me say it another way, Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 5. He answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Okay, now Jesus is using some different terms here. Let, let's kind of break down what we're talking about and what Jesus is talking about when he uses that phrase here, water and spirit. Let's look at some ideas that it might mean. But let me remind you of something. And if you don't know it, let me teach you something. There's a, a, a tendency in Jewish literature. They would set things parallel to each other to compare multiple meanings of a word or a phrase or an idea throughout a passage to further prove a point. So anathen, which can mean born again, does mean born again, can also mean born from above, and can also refer to the idea of born from water and spirit. All of these things are equal phrases. Born again equals born from above, which equals born of water and spirit. Here are the major ways that this uh, phrase, this passage, has been understood in the past. So let me give you four ideas here, and we can decide which one is correct. The first idea is that it could be water or amniotic fluid, like your water broke. So the water is regular, natural birth. That's what the water is referring to. And the spirit is the spiritual birth that Jesus is talking about here. So it could mean something like this. Unless a man is born physically and then born spiritually, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, one option. Let's look at number two. Some take water to refer to Christian baptism. Now, this is particularly prevalent in the Church of Christ. Unless a man receives the rite of Christian baptism and is also regenerated by the Spirit of God. Well, okay, maybe, but I, personally as a Baptist, I have some problems with that. Um, I, I hold baptism as a, as a high thing. It's a very important thing. It's a part of our church membership. It's a part of our obedience to Christ. But is it necessary in order to have a new heart and be born again or born from above? Well, not necessarily. And the thief on the cross next to Jesus displays that point perfectly. He wasn't baptized. The thief on the cross who Jesus tells, I will see you in paradise later on, was not baptized. And yet, through his faith in Jesus, was taken to heaven with Jesus. So that one, mm, I, I'm not sure that I, I'm buying into that one. Let's look at uh, the third option. Some have suggested that water stands for the word of God. And it would mean something like this. Unless you obey the law and are regenerated from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, the entire book of Galatians would have a big problem with that idea. You don't have to follow the law anymore. We're not bound by the law to have a relationship with Christ. Instead, to have a relationship with Christ, we have faith and trust in him as Lord, as our Savior. That's all that it takes in order to be regenerated. So I don't have to obey the law and be regenerated. That's not how it works anymore. So I have major issues with this interpretation. Let's look at a fourth option. Some take water and spirit to refer to the life-giving work of God, where he cleanses us with water and breathes life into us by the Spirit. This would cause the passage to be understood as this. Unless the Spirit cleanses you and regenerates, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think we should go ahead and eliminate numbers two and three. Those, to me, uh, are the least tenable options, ones that have been put forward, but to me don't make sense when you look at the passage as a whole. So let's look at numbers one and four. And actually what I want you to do, Sean, is I want you to go to verse six really quick. 
Jesus is going to prove what he's talking about here. If the water is physical birth and the spirit is spiritual birth, then we need to look at the entire passage to see if Jesus is talking about physical birth at all. Well, let's look at verse 6, chapter 3. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So I, I guess my question is, is Jesus talking about natural birth at all in this passage? I mean, is that his point? Is that really what he's after? Or is he using birth as a metaphor to talk about the spiritual birth that occurs when you're cleansed with the water and given new life by the Spirit? So I think we should go ahead and eliminate number one because I don't think Jesus is trying to talk about natural birth. That's not what he's aiming after. He's aiming after spiritual birth. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be washed with the water and the Spirit in order to enter and see the kingdom of God. So to me, number four makes the most sense. Unless the Spirit cleanses you and regenerates, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And actually, number four, to me, um, resonates with the Old Testament and how it describes what receiving the Spirit of God would look like. And there's a really important passage that we've looked at in our covenant series in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This heart of flesh, what Jesus removes that heart of stone and gives us this new heart, this heart of flesh is the heart of living faith. It is a loving relationship with the creator. Now, I think Jesus is referring to passages like Ezekiel chapter 36 to point this expert in the Old Testament law, the one who was using the royal we at the very beginning of this dialogue between the two, point uh, a Nicodemus towards what the real work of the Messiah would be. You have to remember that the Jews assumed that the Messiah would come and set up um, uh, Israel as a, a political uh, and dominant power in the world, and that the Messiah would rule and the Christ would reign. That's what they assumed would happen, but that wasn't the real work of the Messiah. Instead, the real work is a cleansing of the water and the spirit. And this is God's gift of a new heart and a new spirit. See, giving is a cycle. Uh, someone has to initiate it. It, 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 doesn't, it, it can't just happen by happenstance. Uh, it has to be initiated by someone or something. Because of God's great love for us, God takes the initiative. He started this whole giving relationship. He gave to us. So then if we're a part of that giving cycle, then our love is a response to his love. And our generosity is a response to his generosity. That's because love, like faith, isn't something that we invent, but something we experience and then respond to. It is both a gift of God and our response to God's grace and mercy. We have to believe, which means we have to receive. And when we do, we enter into this movement of divine generosity, this, this cyclical pattern where I'm given, and so because I'm given, I can give. Because I'm loved, I can love. And that had to be started somewhere, and it starts with the creator, with God. We don't invent it, we experience it. 
Faith is more than a cognitive agreement, intellectual assent with factual data or with um, persuasive philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Those are important, but faith is more than that. Our faith humbles us. Our faith trusts the incredible love and generosity of God. Faith is both a gift of God and a costly demand. That's because faith requires everything that we are, all our trust, all our hope, and all our life. We don't invent these things. We join into what God initiates. God is the one who grants us the gift of faith. God is the one who grants us the gift of grace. God is the one who grants us the gift of Jesus. And all we have to do is believe to receive. Calvin explained this water-spirit birth language really well. This is what he says. It is as if Christ had said that no man is a son of God until he has been renewed by water, and that this water is the spirit who cleanses us anew, and who, by spreading his energy over us, imparts to us heavenly life, though by nature we are utterly dry. By water, therefore, is meant nothing more than the inward purification and invigoration which is produced by the Holy Spirit. What a great quote. And that's exactly what I think Jesus is talking about. That's in agreement with how the Old Testament describes what would happen when the new thing occurs. When Jesus shows up and the new covenant happens, this is it. The water purifies us, cleanses us, and the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, removing our heart of stone and, and instead giving us a heart of flesh. So here's the point. This new life and this new standing before God is the work of God. And it comes down to you and to I as a gift. You can't work to earn it. You can't make it happen. Ultimately, it's a gift. So what you have to do is to receive this gift. Not to receive the gift is to reject it. And you understand what, what I'm saying here. That means you're rejecting the Son of God. That means that you're rejecting the love of God. Just as God acted out of his love, you must act with your will to receive the Son. I think that's profound. God loved us, so now we have to act. We have to receive the gift. And we can reject it. But what's pictured here is that why would we want to? It's a gift God loves us so much, and his grace is so um, exponentially beyond what we can understand and even grasp. And it's so wonderful, and so we should want to receive through belief. Jesus continues in verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Do you get the point he's trying to make here? Like the new birth is like the wind. You can't predict it and you can't control it. You can't even see it, but you know it when it happens. This is how it is with the spirit. You can't see it. You can't control the spirit, but you can receive the gift of new life and a new heart. And you can definitely feel and experience that. Let's look at verse nine. Nicodemus is perplexed. He still doesn't understand what Jesus is even getting after. How can this be? <laughs> he asks. Jesus is not going to let him go either. And of course, you should know that from our covenant series. God does not give up on us. So he pursues our salvation and the restoration of heaven and earth. And so he's going to pursue some, some more conversation here with Nicodemus. It's not just I make my point and walk away. He wants to actually bring Nicodemus into some understanding. So he continues. You are Israel's teacher, 
said Jesus. And you don't understand these things? Hmm, interesting. So Jesus now turns Nicodemus's own words on him. You came to me saying, we know this and that, using the royal we. Now it's pretty clear that you didn't really know even the basics concerning spiritual life. Now Jesus uses the royal we, which I think is really interesting. Now Jesus is using the same thing that Nicodemus used after some time. Verses 11 and 12. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? But after humbling Nicodemus, Jesus gives him some hope. Verses 13 through 15. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this is an important phrase, the Son of Man. I'll, I'll, I'll give you just a brief inf some information in this moment. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, we're talking about snakes and sons of man. This is all very confusing if you haven't read your Old Testament. But if you have read the Old Testament, um, if you know some of these stories, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to do. He's talking to an expert in the law. Someone who knows these stories intimately. Not just intimately, not just knows the story, but has memorized the very words of these stories. Knows exactly what Jesus is referencing here. And Jesus is using some Old Testament reference kung fu to assert that he has specific knowledge from God. He's claiming to be the Son of Man, which is from Daniel chapter 7. It's Jesus' actual favorite title to describe himself. It's from Daniel chapter 7 describing um, what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. The Messiah would be one who uh, ultimately ascends to the throne of the Ancient of Days, as Daniel describes it. And then he also uses another reference here. A snake in the wilderness. If you haven't read the, the stories of the Israelites wandering in the desert with Moses, then this won't make any sense. But what happened was a bunch of snakes came and bit a bunch of people. Okay? And they're all dying. And so uh, God speaks to Moses. Moses is told to take one of the snakes, cover it in bronze, and lift it up on a pole. And if anyone will look at it, which, I, which means more than just looking at it. I mean, it means that you have to believe that what Moses is telling you is going to happen. If you look at the snake, you will be healed. And so if anyone looks at the snake that's lifted high up on this pole then they will be healed from the snake bites that they received. But what's wild is that in the story, there are those who won't look at the bronze snake. They won't accept, they won't receive everything Jesus is talking about. They won't receive and believe what uh, Moses told them to do. And so Jesus is likening these um, two Old Testament references to himself. And he's saying that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has to be lifted up just like the snake in the wilderness. And that anyone, everyone who believes, anyone who looks up and sees, who recognizes what's happening here by faith, who believes and receives what Jesus is all about, if they will do that, if they will believe in his crucifixion, just like the golden, uh, golden or sorry, bronze serpent, then those who accept that gift, they will have eternal life, just as the people in Moses' day had life after they looked at the bronze snake. So then Jesus gives the reason for why he's even bringing this up in the first place. Yeah, he's, he's talking about how, how you'll receive eternal life, but by believing in the Son, by believing in the Son of Man, just like those who looked at the bronze snake. But why? He, he then goes in in John 3.16 and gives the reason. Now, John 3.16 is at the same time one of the most profound 
and glorious verses in the entire Bible. I mean, it's been without question the single most quoted verse in the Bible, I mean, until like this decade. In the history of Western and Christian civilization, John 3.16 has ruled supreme because it gives the reason for the gift of Jesus and the gift of salvation that comes to those who believe in this gift. Most people think that this verse, though, is focusing on the quantity of God's love. And certainly that's implied. God absolutely loves. So most people read the verse this way, for God, so, uh, for God loved the world so much that he gave. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Here's the problem, though. I do think God loves us a lot. But that's not really what the verse in Hebrews, uh, sorry, in, in Greek is trying to say. The emphasis in Greek is much better understood as in this way. So I think it's implied absolutely that God loves us from this verse. And he loves us, I mean, huge. I mean, a crazy amount. More than we could ever understand, right? Uh, but that's not the crux, that's not the emphasis, that's not the thrust of the verse. The, the verse really is trying to say, in this way. So, actually, the CSB version um, gets it spot on, I think. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not say, I love you so much as if love is only about feelings. It's not. His expression of love is not merely in words. God's not all talk. I mean, if God teaches us anything, it's that love is an action word. Love is communicated through actions of generosity, and Jesus modeled what love would look like in the life of a true human as he gives himself. Romans 5.8 will back me up here in what I'm saying. It illustrates this manner of, of, in which God acts in love. Now, if you grew up with the King James Version, um, it did little to help you understand what's happening in these verses. Uh, let's look at the King James Version. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Anybody use commendeth this past week? Sean, did you say commendeth? No, she didn't. She didn't say commendeth. I didn't say commendeth. That's not a, a word that we would use often. So let's look at some of the modern English translations to kind of get a better understanding of what is trying to be conveyed there by the King James. Let's look at the ESV. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's move over to the NIV. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then finally, let's move to the CSB to get really an understanding of the point. But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is not all talk. He shows, he demonstrates, he proves his love for us. How did God prove his love for you and for I? He gave. That's it. He, he gave, he gives. And what an amazing demonstrator, demonstration that is, because the creator of the universe deemed you important enough to give a gift. Now, he's not obligated to give you anything. He owns it all. He's not obligated to you in any way, yet he loves you that much that he would give to you. That's his heartbeat. That's what the creator's about. Yeah, he doesn't have to, and he knows that, but he wants to. 
because he loves you. Because he loves you, he gives. And you got to consider that. What really is the gift? It's the Savior. It's Jesus. It's himself. It's a Savior who will die in our place, who will resolve our sin problem. Sin is when we don't obey God's commands or live up to his standards. Sin is an issue. Since the very beginning of, of all time, since the beginning of humanity, it's been an issue and it's still our essential problem. And yet the gift of the Savior is that he can resolve our sin problems and reconcile us back to a loving relationship with our Creator. The gift is a righteous king that will make everything that is wrong in this world right once again. And not only that, not only is he our king and our savior, but he's also a loving friend who would give his life for others and then give us his righteousness as a guarantee of our eternal life. He would give us eternal life. He would give us the spirit. He would give us spiritual gifts. I mean, the list just keeps going on and on and on because all the good things in our lives come from the father of lights, as James says. This is how God loves you. He doesn't just say it. He shows, he demonstrates, he proves. And the greatest expression is in Jesus. And the greatest verse that talks about the greatest expression says that for God loved us in this way that he gave. For God so loved, he gave. This is what he's all about. Now, Nicodemus um, leaves this meeting with Jesus, and, and I think he's still confused, but I think he's, his, his, just like the generosity series has been messing with me, <laughs> so did these words mess with, uh, mess with Nicodemus. These words about God's love and generosity and how you can have new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus did eventually, I think, receive Jesus as Savior. He did believe in the gift of Jesus, and in that belief he received um, life, a new heart and a new spirit. So the way that I know that is that Nicodemus was one of the two men who took the body of Jesus from the cross. But instead of being secretive, as in his first meeting, going by night and being sneaky, he goes publicly and he gets Jesus' body. I mean, it's an acknowledgement of how important Jesus is to Nicodemus. No doubt his tears mingled with the water and blood as he removed the body and washed the body and prepared Jesus for the tomb. Nicodemus himself came to understand the significance of Jesus being lifted up and was drawn to him by faith. Nicodemus surely saw that everything Jesus had said there in their dialogue was happening. It was true. Just like the serpent was lifted up, so Jesus, the Messiah, must also be lifted up. And those who look to him in faith and in trust, who desire to make him their savior and who believe in the gift of God through love, those can receive the blessing of new life and the blessing of a new spirit to follow God's commands fully. Clearly what Jesus told Nicodemus changed his life. He was finally able to see Jesus for who he really was, not just as a rabbi, but as the Messiah. Because what Jesus told him was becoming real. And that's because you can't invent love. You can't invent faith. You can just experience it. 
And Nicodemus surely experienced the love of Jesus when he opened his um, his, his his understanding and when he opened his heart to reach out and try and seek God, he found Christ. John 3.16 stands as a reminder about God's character and his heartbeat. He is love. He is, he is love. It's not just a characteristic of his. That's what he is, essentially. He is love. And because he is love, he is generous. So my message for you is that God loved you. And he so loved you that he gave. He loved you in this way, that he would give himself, that he would give him, uh, he would give Jesus as a gift for us. What incredible generosity. This is what ought to propel us into the cycle of generosity. Because he gave, we give. Because he gave, we live. Now, I, I hope this generosity has been messing with you Generosity series has been messing with you the way that it's been messing with me. I hope it's been challenging you to look at your time and your talents and your resources differently. I hope that you've begun to ask yourself how you can begin to be more generous, more fully reflecting and imitating what our creator is all about. So we're to be generous and we're to grow in the grace of of generosity for God so loved he gave and because we are so loved we can give and because we have been given so much we can become generous people and in doing that we like Jesus can change people's life like he did for Nicodemus not because we are so awesome but become because we become the middlemen or conduits of God's grace of God's gift of God's love that's what we were always intended to be as his image bearers for God so loved the world he gave, and when God loves us that way, we can give as well. So if you've never received Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord and as your friend, then you have an opportunity today. Here in a moment, I'll pray. And you can just follow along making the words that I'll pray your own. And if you believe that sincerely in your heart and you believe that in your mind, then it's true. Then you are saved. You Your sins will be forgiven the ways that we don't match up to God's commands or his or his standards, we, those will be forgiven. And now God will give you, uh, he'll remove your heart of stone and give you a brand new heart. He'll give you a new spirit where you can actually follow him. And you won't be perfect at it. None of us are. But that's okay because God's gift of grace doesn't require that we be perfect. It requires that we be in process, growing to become more like Jesus. So in a moment we'll pray and you can make the words your own in order to receive Christ as Lord of your life. Now, if you have received Jesus Christ, the essential question we keep going back to is, are you growing in generosity? Because growing in generosity isn't just growing in an aspect of our Christian walk. It is growing our Christian walk. Being generous is growing to become more like Christ. It matches the heartbeat of our creator. So are you growing in generosity? Whether it's the four, uh, the four aspects we've talked about, whether it's voluntary financial giving, volunteering our time and our skills and our abilities to people, uh, using that to impact and leverage some of the skills that we have in order to bless others. Are we um, giving our emotional bandwidth through, uh, through uh, 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 relational generosity? Are we giving our time um, and love to others? 
Are we giving our physical care through neighborly generosity? In these four areas, are we being generous people? And if there's an area that we can become more generous, God is calling you to do that. This does not fight at all with what the gospel is about and what what God is about. God is about you becoming generous in these areas of your life. So are you growing in generosity? Because a part of our transformation as disciples is to see the world as Jesus sees it. That's the first message. To see the world like Jesus sees it. And when we do that, we'll begin to grow in the grace of generosity, which actually is growing in our spiritual lives. And we'll live in faith knowing that God will bless our lives to overflowing so that we can live a life of abundance, which then pours out of us and becomes a blessing to everyone else, which is exactly what Jesus was always intended to be. We can go all the way back to Abraham and see that that was the intended purpose, that the Israelites weren't just to be a blessed people, but that one day someone would come who was Jesus, the Messiah, and he would become a blessing to all. That's what we are to become So here's what I want to do. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, I would love for you to follow me here in a prayer in a moment. And then I'll close this out with a prayer generally for everybody. And then we'll finish our broadcast this morning. If you feel so inclined, I would challenge you to share this today. What a great message during Christmas time where people are kind of whipped up into a, you know, an enchanting spirit wearing Santa socks, you know, whatever, uh, watching these great movies that call them towards generosity, what Christmas is really all about, gift giving and love. Maybe someone would be ready this morning to hear, uh, or maybe this week would be able to hear and would be ready to listen to something about love and God's generosity and his love for them personally. Maybe you should share this sermon this morning as, uh, as a way to, Maybe get the message out about Jesus to someone who needs to hear about him. So here's what we'll do. Let's pray. Let's first pray for those who would like to receive Christ. And if that's the case, please, could you text that um, that 97,000 number? Could you text uh, the word cornerstone to 97,000? And then when you get a response, let, let Jeremy know, Pastor Jeremy know that you received Christ as your personal Savior, as Lord of your life. We would love to then walk alongside of you, get a Bible in your hand, Uh, and start to disciple you and show you what it looks like to be a Christian in a really faithful, wonderful way. All right, let's pray. If you are one who would like to do that, follow along this way. Dear God, thank you so much for your love for me. Thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. I recognize that I've not lived up to God's standards and I've not always done what God commands. I've hurt myself and I've hurt others. I've sinned, but I recognize and I believe I want to receive this gift that Jesus is giving me. I want to receive the forgiveness of all of my sins that God can give through Jesus. I believe that you can forgive me. So let me receive that. Thank you for forgiving my sins, Jesus. Thank you for loving me this way. Now I ask that you would Change my heart. Bless me with your spirit and change me to become more like you every single day. Help me to become a faithful Christian who grows and looks more like Jesus in every way, in my thoughts and in my actions and in my speech. Help me to become more like you. Help me to learn as I read the Bible and become more aware of how I'm supposed to be living. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Help me to now become a blessing to others. Thank you so much in Jesus' name.
Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please let us know. Please, please, please text the word 97,000. Uh, text the word cornerstone to 97,000. Jeremy would love to be in contact with you. Let's pray one more time for those of us who ha- already have faith in Jesus and um, uh, uh, to be challenged this week to grow in more generosity. Father, thank you again for this generosity series. Thanks for the fact that it's messing with some of us and challenging many of us to see the world differently and to think about how you love us and call us to live a life of generosity the same way that you are generous for us. Help us to match your heartbeat as the creator. You loved, so you gave. So we should do the same. For those of us who have received and believed in this gift, help us to rethink about what John 3.16 means to our lives. It's not just an important verse that we can use for evangelism, although it is that, but actually it's a lifestyle. It's what we're supposed to be like because that's what God is like. Because we've been born again and because we've received the gift of Jesus, help us to then become a blessing to everyone that's around us. Anyone in our sphere of influence, the sphere of people that we know, whether it's our neighbors immediately, physically, or our neighbors broadly, whoever that might be. Help us to be generous to them. Help us to be generous with our time and our talents and our resources. Help us to be generous in our financial giving to bless the church and to bless others as well. Father, I pray that you would challenge us as we move into this Christmas season to see things like you do. You are a gift, and we are a part of that cycle of giving, where because you gave, we can give. Father, thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives. Keep us safe from all this COVID stuff. Um, keep our bodies healthy and, uh, and and help us to be wise and discerning about what things we should do or not do in order to keep ourselves and our family members healthy. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.